Welcome to Diffuse Congruence. This is episode 143 of the American Muslim Experience, and I am joined by our co-host, Omar Ansari. Assalamu alaikum, listeners. Assalamu alaikum, Bavez. How are you? Waalaikum salam. Yeah, you know, it's um, been a tough few weeks, as I imagine. I know something we alluded to the last episode. It's tough watching the images that you find on your feeds. And yeah, just trying to make, you know, just trying to keep your head above water in terms of... Uh, not letting that weigh you down too much. You know, all we can do, and I think we're trying in our own sort of feeble attempt to do so, which is to just shed some light on the Palestinian struggle and to talk about the history and the background of what got us to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been great seeing everybody do their part. I mean, I think people are going to protests. You have businesses doing fundraisers. You have mosques doing like programs aimed at youth even mm-hmm. uh you have people posting on social media honestly like posting on social media itself is like kind of a risk you're like what are my colleagues thinking what are my what are my friends thinking who are you know are they going to get it uh is this going to put me at risk for my job but what we're trying to do is just continue having dialogue with folks who have knowledge on the matter that can educate both ourselves and potentially shed some light on the subject that maybe getting ignored in, in mainstream media. Um, so inshallah, this can be a benefit. We're, 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 we've done two podcasts so far on the topic, and this is the third. Yeah, I really, you know, I actually really appreciate you saying that because um, I think that is something that I certainly feel, but I don't know if we've, we've acknowledged on the air. You know, you and I don't present ourselves as experts of really anything. Uh, I mean, we're experts in what we do for a livelihood and all of that stuff. But what, what I enjoy is the format that we present is we bring on experts who have a breadth and a scope of knowledge in the field. And all we do is provide the sort of questions and maybe guide the conversation where we, first of all, you and I can learn. And then by extension, our listeners can learn. So, um, and I think we continue that trajectory of bringing experts to the show. And I think we're honored today to have what I consider one of the leading experts on the history of Palestine, but also uh, the Middle East at large. Who are we honored to have today, Omer? By, by chance, I was actually just listening to the audiobook of the Hundred Years War on Palestine because my, my niece was talking about it. She had heard about it on college campus. Uh, Zaytuna College is doing it as part of their monthly book club. But uh, the book is The Hundred Years War on Palestine. More importantly, our, our guest is Professor Rashid Khalidi. Uh, Professor Khalidi is Edward Said, Professor of Arab Studies at Columbia University. He received a bachelor's, a BA from Yale University in 1970 and a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford in 1974. Professor Khalidi is taught at the Lebanese University, the American University of Beirut, and the University of Chicago. He's co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and has served as president of the Middle East Studies Association. And Professor Khalidi has written or co-edited 10 books, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, and Palestinian Identity, The Construction of Modern National Consciousness. Professor Khalidi, welcome to the show. Uh, We are honored, deeply honored to have you on the show. And I know I want to be cognizant of your time. Again, just uh, we are really excited to get started. But I guess where we like to usually start off with our guest is what we like to call the origin story, as it were. So maybe a little bit about your background. I know that the Khalidi name, you know, means something in Palestinian society historically. 
So we can definitely talk about that. And I know that's something you touch on in the book as well. I come from a, 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 an old Jerusalem family. Um, my father uh, came here uh, just before World War II as a graduate student and wasn't able to go back to Palestine. So I was born here in New York City. Uh, my mother emigrated to the States from Lebanon um, when she was very small. Um, and I was very much influenced by my family background. We used to go back uh, all the time to Palestine and to Lebanon, where men, much of my family ended up after, after the Nakba, after 1948. And to Amman, where many others were, and to Palestine, where a large number of them also were. So I spent a great deal of time um, in the Middle East. My father worked for the UN, so we went to Libya, spent a couple of years there, spent time in Lebanon, spent time also in Korea, where my father's job took him. Um, I, I mean, I, I could talk more about my background, but I, I think that that gives you a summary. I mean, my family has been in Jerusalem, as far as we know, at least since the Crusades. We have a family library there, and there's some material that indicates we may go back even farther than that in Jerusalem, but certainly since the Crusades. So you mentioned your father being involved diplomatically. Uh, I think it also goes back even further than that. You obviously, like the new book begins with uh, a letter that your um, grand-uncle, I believe? Great-great-uncle. Great-great-uncle wrote to Theodore Herzl, founder of Zionism, modern Zionism as we know it. If you could talk a little bit about th that part of the, your family background as well. Um, right. Was there even some religious scholars in, that, in the background? Absolutely. My, my grandfather was a Thadi. I, th I, I thought I had heard that rumor. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not a rumor. It's the truth. I can show you the picture right here. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, he was a he was a Qadi and uh, he ended his career in Jaffa. Um, he served in a couple of other places. Um, he was a Hajj. My my great grandmother took him on the Hajj when he was young. Hmm. Um, but he uh, sent all of his sons for secular education, um, even though he came from a long line of Alama of religious scholars. Um, People in my family uh, served in the position of uh, or chief secretary of the Mahkam Shari'iyya, of the uh, religious court in Jerusalem, and Na'ib al-Qadi, deputy of the judge for generations, going back to the 1700s, maybe before. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the family has a background of religious scholarship, but my father and all my uncles uh, were educated at place like the, places like the American University of Beirut. Uh, several of them became doctors. My dad came here uh, and ended up with a PhD in history from Colombia. Um, now, the, the people you mentioned uh, who were involved at different stages of the early encounter between Zionism and the Palestinians um, include a relative uh, by the name of Yusuf Diyal Qalbi, who uh, was at different times deputy for Jerusalem in the first Ottoman parliament and mayor of Jerusalem, and a scholar who had taught in Vienna and knew foreign languages and followed the press, which we know from his papers, his newspapers, which the newspapers that, that he received in the family library, they're, they're still there. Um, so he was, he was, uh, he was not extremely knowledgeable about Zionism. I just came upon some of his papers the other day while I was rummaging through a drawer, um, pay, uh, put pamphlets and booklets on Judaism, on Zionism and so on. Uh, and so he wrote to Herzl, knowing what Zionism was all about, two years after the first Zionist Congress in Basel 
1897. He wrote him in 1899. And as you said, he, he told him that, you know, while um, Muslims feel a kinship with Jews, we're cousins, he said. And while we uh, understand and appreciate and honor your connection to the Holy Land, um, and while we, you know, have no problem in principle with Zionism because the Jews are terribly oppressed in Europe, um, there's a serious problem in coming to Palestine because there's already people here. And he ends that part of the letter by saying, for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. I quote that in the first part of the book. Right. So the, what we have here is someone who is clearly knowledgeable and worried and trying to warn uh, the person he knows is the leader of the Zionist movement, the, the founder, as you say, of modern political Zionism. Herzl's reply is dismissive and and even speaks to concerns that that Yusuf Dia had never 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 expressed. He says we have no intention of of making you people leave or something along those lines. And he never even suggested that in his letter. So clearly that was in Herzl's mind. And if we look at his diaries, we know why it was because he did have the intention. He he told his diaries that we'll spirit them discreetly across the frontiers. So. Um, well, was the justification in his mind the idea, again, that we've heard, uh, a land without people for a people without a land? I mean, was that sort of his mindset with regards to how he viewed Palestine at the time? You know, Herzl clearly knew that there were people there. Um, he did visit Palestine. Uh, he, he came for a couple of reasons. One of them was to meet Kaiser Wilhelm, whom he was trying to uh, persuade to support the Zionist movement. Um, so he knew there were people there. Um, and he knew he had to get rid of them, or he wouldn't have written into his diary, we'll have to spirit them across the frontier. But he presumably believed, as many early Zionist leaders did, that this people was rootless, or this people had no real ties to the land, or this people uh, could be bribed or otherwise persuaded to leave. Or perhaps he believed that it could be forced to leave. That's not clear from anything I've read. But in any case, he knew there were people there. And he knew that if, in order to establish a Jewish majority state, you'd have to get rid of that Arab population. Um, and he did not respond, as he might have, to Yusuf Leah Pasha's letter by saying, yes, well, I have to take account of that. Um, instead, he fobs him off with a variety of, of you know, well-phrased excuses. And on the Palestinian side, your great-great-uncle, was he sort of ahead of the curve in realizing that something was awry? Or was this a concern amongst kind of the masses? Um, if not, when did that concern kind of get sparked? When did yeah. the when did the widespread Palestinian society start realizing something is coming that could be a threat to their existence? I think he was ahead of the curve, ahead of the curve, except insofar as those Palestinians who lived near the first uh, Zionist agricultural colonies, who clashed from the very beginning with the new settlers. But uh, I think he was head, ahead of the curve in Palestinian society as a whole. And it's not until a little later when the press is freed after the 1908 constitutional revolution that we're able to see that a larger, much larger number of people than just peasants adjacent to the first settlements and a few uh, uh, intellectuals and, 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 and uh, uh, people who knew foreign languages like, like Yusuf Leah uh, were concerned. You see dozens and dozens of articles in newspapers uh, starting soon after that, that the press is freed in 1908, which expressed deep concern about this. And so one has to assume that this was a widespread uh, uh, concern of people throughout 
at least some parts of Palestinian society. Kind of understood what was coming. Okay. Um, and then when we going back to the early Jewish settlement, uh, like settlers, um, what's their sort of ethnic background? For, for, for those who may not be familiar, Jewish people generally fall along three ethnic lines, Mizrahi, Sephardic, and Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi being European, and, and the Mizrahi being Arab. No, uh, Sephardim are people, Sephardim is the, is the Hebrew for Spain. Okay. They would have been um, the Jewish population of Spain that's expelled after 1492. Right, after the uh, Inquisition. Sephardim would be people who went to North Africa or the Ottoman Empire, mostly. Understood. Uh, some went to Holland, a very few went to other parts of Europe where they were subject to anti-Semitic persecution, which is why most of them went to the Muslim world where they were not. Um, and it says something about how twisted the history has been since then. Right. That there's an assumption that there was always Jew hatred and anti-Semitism in the Muslim world, which really wasn't true. There was discrimination for sure. And these were Muslim majority societies. Christians and Jews were people of the book, but they didn't have the same rights as Muslims in these Muslim majority societies. Nevertheless, this was a place of refuge for them, mm -hmm. where they lived for hundreds of years perfectly securely in most, in most cases. Uh, Mizrahis are Eastern Jews. They're, they would be mostly living in Arab countries, speaking Arabic. Some would have lived in Turkey, some would have lived in Iran or even further east, and they would have spoken Persian or Turkish or whatever language, uh, whatever the language was of the country they lived in. The, the Jewish population of Palestine was a majority uh, Mizrahi, of course, with a, a, a number, a large number of Ashkenazi European Jews who had come for religious reasons and lived mainly in the four holy cities in Jerusalem, in Hebron, uh, in uh, Safad and in Tiberias. Uh, but these would be people who were pretty much integrated into society, but isolated religiously. They were there for religious purposes. They were not Zionists. Uh, they were there to pray or to, to be buried in the Holy Land or to learn. So there were, there were yeshivas in Jerusalem and, and in other places. Did they, did they the Jew, just to finish, the mm -hmm. immigrants were mainly Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. Right. Like you already mentioned, that that had already kind of begun, but for religious reasons not for right. populating right. or occupying the right. land. And, and, that, and that immigration to Palestine goes back centuries and centuries. That's right. I mean, in addition to the, to the Mizrahi Jewish populations that had been there forever, or certainly centuries, you had an accretion, a number of people who had come over many, many years, and many of whom stayed. And so some of them had been there for you know, a very long time. Some of them were new arrivals, but they were there for religious reasons. Most of the, uh, my understanding is most of the local population uh, the Palestinians were were Muslim and uh, sorry, yeah, Muslim and Christian. Did the Jews identify, self-identify in those academic terms, or did they just consider themselves we're just people all from we're all the same people from the same place? We just happen to have a different religion. Um, you know, this issue of self-identification is something that's very hard for people with a modern um, nationalist um, frame of mind to appreciate. Most people in most places of the world did not identify nationally before the 19th century. Yeah. And that was certainly true in most of the Middle East through the 19th century and in most other parts of the world, including many parts of Eastern Central Europe and Southern Europe. Um, and so the way in which people of my grandfather's generation or the generation before him would have self-identified, whether they were Christian or Jewish or Muslim in Palestine, would have been, I think, primarily by, in terms of religion but also in terms of locality. So you had people whose names were like Nabelsi, meaning they came from Nablus, or Khalili, meaning they came from Hebron, and so on. 
Um, so you had identification by place, identification by religion, identification if they were Arab as Arabs or Persians or, or Turks or whatever it may have been. In, in terms of language, this would not have been a national identification in 1820. It would have been pride in being an Arab, pride in speaking Arabic, pride that Arabic is the language of the Quran, uh, pride in Arabic uh, literature and, and pre-Islamic poetry and so on and so forth. But that would not have been a national expression. Until much later, end of the 19th century, you begin to have modern nationalist ideas among Jews and Arabs, by the way. There's no such sense among Jews either. The idea that Jews should live in a Jewish state did not exist in 1810 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, anywhere, ever, among any part of the Jewish population the world over. This is a modern phenomenon uh, uh, which is related to the development of nationalism. And it feels like that difference in what it used to be versus what it is now in terms of how people do do identify through nationalism, nationality, is actually an argument used by who were say, who say like Palestine never existed, and therefore, in an, in in when you look at it from a nationalistic frame, therefore the Palestinian people never existed. Right? There seems to be a current right. modern right. argument using that. Yeah. I mean, using that framework, the Israeli people never existed. There was a Jewish people which self-identified as Jewish, primarily in terms of religion over the centuries, for sure, just as there was an Armenian people that self-identified as Armenian or other groups, whether religious or ethnic. Um, I mean, Arabs identified as Arabs, but not in national, modern national terms. That didn't determine that we have to be in an Arab state. No, they were happy to be in an Ottoman state or a Qajar state or whatever it may have been. Um, and that was true everywhere. That was true in the Russian Empire. That was true in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These were transnational, multi-ethnic, religiously legitimated empires uh, where you owed loyalty to the sovereign and where you were, your religion, if you were the majority, uh, part of the majority religion, your religion was what tied you uh, to that, that, that state, not nationality. And that was true of everybody everywhere. That's right. Uh, not just Palestinians or Jews or whoever. So the idea that, well, Israeli nationalism goes back thousands of years and Palestinian nationalism started whatever, 10, 50, whatever arbitrary false state you give it. Um, is completely false. All of the nationalisms in the Middle East didn't exist 150 years ago. Right. Well, none of them, none of them, including Israeli. That's right. Sykes-Picot and all of that sort of subsequent exactly. history is what defines the nation state. We, I hope we know that history. <laughs> uh, one hopes. Um, so again, I know we can talk a lot about history and, you know, and I, I think I had mentioned when I reached out, we had a wonderful conversation with Professor McDesey a few weeks ago. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned yeah, one of the things that we think that I wanted to flesh out was one of the terms that certainly came up was the idea of a settler colonial project defining right. um, uh, Zionism. And so I wanted to kind of dig deeper into that before we move into your book specifically in the sort of six declarations of war that you identify. I've heard you quote historian Patrick Wolf as saying settler colonies were are premised on the elimination of the native societies. And the split tensing reflected determinant of settler colonization. The colonizers come to stay. Invasion is a structure, not an event. I thought that was right. a wonderful sort of articulation of and, and helps to define this idea of a settler colonial project. But right. if you could kind of flush that out, because I think that is that certainly informs the mindset not only of early Zionism, but continues to this day. Well, I, I think that Patrick Wolf sums it up perfectly. As far as all settler colonial projects are concerned, they come to replace the native. 
whether they put the native in Bantustans or, or Native American reservations or Area A, Area B, Area C in the Gaza Strip doesn't really, doesn't really matter. There are different forms of settler colonialism. Obviously, each one is unique. The Zionist form is unique in multiple respects. Um, Zionism is a national project as well as a settler colonial project. Most others were not. Some of them became that. The United States is a British settler colonial project, which becomes a national project in the 18th, end of the 18th century. Um, mm, Northern or... Rhodesia, unilateral declaration of independence of people who come as an extension of the British population to extend the sovereignty of the British crown, decide they want to become a nation. Now, they failed. A la India, our mother motherland. Yeah, exactly. Well, India's not a settler colony. Right, that's India's what I mean. That's what I mean. It's not a settler colony. Exactly. Right, exactly. right, right. Um, Zionism is different in that the Zionist movement was both a national movement. It was not an extension of British. Brit, Brit, it did not intend to be an extension of British sovereignty. Right. And it was not ex an extension of the British people. It had its own base. It had its own uh, independent sources of funding. It had an ideology, a nationalist ideology, but it operated as a settler colonial project. And it's in that respect, it's quite different than most of the others. Just in the interest of time, um, I do want to hear, talk more about the book and your experiences. And so I would love to hear, as a child, your dad moved here, very curious if he brought the history with him or if that's something that you discovered later on. But also, mm -hmm. uh, what was your experience, what was the family's experience during the Nakba? Um, I discovered only a few years ago that my parents had planned to go back to Palestine uh, as soon as my father finished his doctoral work, which was delayed, among other things, by the Nakba. Um, my grandfather's home, which was on the outskirts of Jaffa, and which actually still exists on the cover of the U.S. edition of the book, The Ruins of My Grandfather's House, um, my grandfather was forced to leave late in the summer of 1948 uh, during one of the truces. Um, one of my uncles and a, a friend managed to get him out. He was a very, he was a very old man by that stage. So he was born in the 1860s, and we're talking almost 1950. So he was, he was a very old man. Um, and so my father could not go back. Um, he stayed in the United States. Um, he himself was studying history, and he had been involved in educational uh, efforts to establish an Arab American Institute in the United States to propagate information about Palestine. So I heard about these things from the moment I was, you know, able to understand. Uh, I heard about Arab history. I heard about Palestine. I met people. I mean, I mean met, my father ended up working at the United Nations for the entirety of his career. So I met ambassadors to the United Nations. Uh, I met uh, uh, all kinds of visitors who came through from the Middle East. Um, and because I had lived in Libya for several years, even though um, I was now living in the United States, I understood Arabic perfectly. So I was listening to people talking from the time I was aware and reading stuff. Um, so this is, these are things that I grew up with in addition to what my father brought home from the Security Council whenever it was in session dealing with the Middle East. His response, he was in the Political and Security Council uh, Affairs Division of the, what was then called Political and Security Council Affairs Division of the United Nations, and his job was to be in the Security Council chamber whenever the Middle East was discussed. So he would come home and say, well, what the Syrian ambassador said was this, but what really happened was that. And the Americans tabled a resolution, and this is what happened to it, and this is why. So I knew about these things when I was 12 or 10 or whatever, as soon as I you know, realized what I was hearing. Um, and that was the atmosphere I grew up in. 
So sort of shifting and moving now directly to, and I think that's a great prelude to talking about the book specifically, because as an academic, you've written obviously scores of works um, on the Middle East, on Palestine specifically, but also to the general Middle East. I would argue that this is certainly your most personal work. To quote Edward Said, Palestinians have been denied the permission to narrate. Is this sort of perhaps your attempt by utilizing your own, the archives of your own family history to uh, present the Palestinian narrative. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that that quote from Edward Said is is very apt because it's something that's always in the front of the minds of everybody, every Palestinian who is forced to deal with this torrent of misinformation that we have to live with uh, in the United States and the West. Um, we always realize that we are. If you're allowed to speak, they will put somebody else with you. Now, if you're talking about slavery, they won't put a slave owner next to you. And if you're talking about the Holocaust, they won't put a Nazi next to you. But if you're talking about Palestine, they have to put a Zionist next to you. So you don't really have permission to narrate, except with uh, uh, someone sniping at you uh, from the sidelines. Um, and uh, I, I have written, as you say, a number of books, uh, two, at least two of which were about Palestine. Right. Um, a book called Palestinian Identity and a book called The Iron, Iron Cage. Cage. Mm -hmm. And those were histories. Uh, the, the, one of them a very dry, very formal monograph, and the other, you know, par partly directed at a general audience, but more scholarly. And what I was trying to do here was not so much to write a personal history of Palestine as to give, I mean, how shall I say, take permission to narrate, but do so on my own behalf. So I'm not speaking for anybody. I'm speaking for myself here. Mm -hmm. But I'm speaking as a scholar, and I'm trying to give you the history, and I'm trying to do that through the lens of things that I've learned about my family and through my family and through other related families. I mean, some of the material is from my wife's family, actually. Mm. My wife's grandfather was the editor of one of the leading Palestinian papers, so I use his memoirs. I use the paper a great deal. I quote him all the time, my, my, my great my grandfather-in-law, you'd call it, my, my wife, right. my wife <laughs> grandfather, whatever. Understood, right, right. Uh, and I, I do that with other members of the family uh, and other people who are not members of my family, whom I, I knew and whose, whose memoirs and whose, whose accounts I, I, I refer to. So it's very, you're right, it's very personal. Yeah. I think we'd be that. remiss, speaking of family, if we didn't mention, I think your son played a role, the playwright. Absolutely. Um, I might not have written this book without him. Mm. He and another relative, my cousin Nawaf, but especially my son Smail, um, were constantly after me, saying, both of them, saying, you've got to write an accessible general history that is readable and that the, that the, ordinary, the ordinary citizen can, can access and understand. And especially my son kept saying to me, you know, you tell us all these stories, we'll put them in the book. You know, you say what your father said to you. You you describe your what your aunts told you. Well, put those things in a book. That's history. Well, some of it, but it's history. Right. So he 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 bears a great deal of uh, of the credit, or he should deserve. He deserves a great deal of the credit. And you know, the it's interesting because you hear about the youth in America, at least, uh, shifting their views and and kind of finally speaking out. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Palestinian people, to, to some extent, I mean, much more than before. Do you think? Oh, yeah. Do you think that the the book, or can you give a specific example that the book potentially shed light on events happening before this generation came of age, maybe the fifties, sixties, seventies, that that the book shed some light on? 
that, that you want to just uh, spotlight? Well, I was going to say, you know, and that was actually kind of where I was going, because I know you lay out like what you are, like what you articulate as six declarations of war. And I think just, again, given the time, rather than going through them specifically, and frankly, I mean, if I haven't done this already, you know, pick up a copy of the book. It's, it's accessible to everyone. You don't have to have a, a background in Middle Eastern studies to be able to read and get a lot out of it. Rather than going into, I think, each declaration, I think we could identify certain key takeaways, takeaways from all of the sort of history that you, that you elucidate. So maybe that's a place to pick up. And, and again, yeah. just given the time. Yeah. I mean, one of the key things I argue is that this is not just a conflict between two peoples, though it is that. It is a conflict which has a settler colonial nature to it. We've already talked about that. Um, and, and early Zionists didn't, had no qualms about talking about it as a, as a settler colonial project. Uh, one of the big land purchasing agencies is the Jewish colonization agents. And, and early Zionist readers, leaders write about this, you know, frankly and with no shame. Um, another important element, which I, I stress in each one of the chapters, is this is not just a war between the Zionist movement and later Israel and the Palestinians. It is a war in which external actors, the British Empire, other great powers, and laterally the United States, are participants in. Israel doesn't do this on its own. It does this together with, and sometimes behind the shield of, great powers. The Palestinians are suppressed during the mandate, not by the Zionists. They were too weak to do that Pretty until crazy. after 1948. Until 1948. They're suppressed by the British. So it's a war between the British, who, who are trying to uh, establish the Zionist movement in Palestine, and the Palestinians. At, at different stages, in other words, uh, the great powers are always part of this. The United States is making war on the Palestinians today. Those are American 155mm and 175mm artillery pieces. Those are American F-35s, American F-15s, and American F-16s, and many other weapon systems, Hellfire missiles. Apache helicopters and so on. We are making war on the, we, the United States, are making war on the Palestinians today. And that was also the case at, in earlier in the 1982 war, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon and so on. So that's the second point I try and make throughout the book, throughout right. the different chapters. If, I could, if we could pause yeah. there, though, because um, it, this was also something that I know that came up with Professor McDesey, but I, I'd love to ask you, which is, why does this idea resonate first with the British and then, you know, with the Americans, this idea of a Jewish homeland. I, I know it's something you've written about. I can't recall if it's in this book or in other books, but, you know, why does that idea resonate so, and it's so deeply entrenched in sort of Western, but specifically here in this case, American right. political consciousness? I mean, the irony is that forms of Zionism are present in British and later American evangelical Protestantism before the rise of modern political Zionism. I mean, you have somebody called Lord Shaftesbury putting forth the idea that it is a Christian duty to facilitate the return of the Jews to Palestine. In the, eight, in the 1830s, Herzl starts in the 1890s. So this is a constant element, this belief that it is a, a specific modern reading of the Bible. Messianic, eschatological, sort of. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the second coming will only take place. The Messiah will only return if the Jews have been returned. Therefore, it is a Christian duty. This is a reading of the New Testament, by the way. Now, there's a, there's a belief in a Messiah, and there are other elements of this that are, exist in the Hebrew Bible, the, right. the, the so-called Old Testament. 
Um, but these are readings of the of the of the New Testament by um, by during a Protestant revival in the early 19th century in the United States and especially in Britain. Okay. So that's the background. That's and one. To this day, you see that in in American Protestantism for sure. Uh, a wing of it is 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 more Zionist than the Zionists, or more Zionist than Jewish Zionists in some respects. That uh, Pastor Hagee spoke yeah. at the at the pro-Israeli rally last week. The other element is uh -huh. strategic. Okay. Um, Britain wanted Palestine for reasons that had nothing to do with the Jews. That was, in my view, the predominant reason for the issuance of the Balfour Declaration. There were multiple reasons, and I I would argue that's a primary reason for American support for Israel to this day. Strategic factors. Flesh that a little bit more. So an ally in the Middle East, that's one. Maybe access to the Suez Canal. Certainly that led to the 1967 right. war. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that or flesh that out a little bit. It was different for each imperial power. Okay. Soviet Union in backing partition had one set of strategic objectives, weakening the British position in the Middle East. Britain before World War II had another set of strategic objectives. They wanted to control the Mediterranean terminus of the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf because of their Indian empire. You know, they wanted to be sure we have the Suez Canal. We want to make sure that we also have the short land route and we want to defend the eastern frontiers of Egypt. So that's a strategic motive that's independent of Zionism. They have this in 1907, 10 years before the Balfour Declaration. The British have already come to, are coming to this conclusion. This has nothing to do with Zionism. This is strategy. This is imperial, imperial uh, logic. Uh, the United States has a different set of, of, of strategic motivations. Um, as you suggested, a, a, a powerful ally in the Middle East, uh, a country that's just like the United States. So there's a, there's, a, there's a similarity there, like some Western European countries, it is thought by, by many American strategists. And during the Cold War, a powerful proxy against Soviet proxies. So the, the wars that are fought in 1967, 1973, uh, the war of attrition between the two are fought on the one side with American weapons and the other side with Soviet weapons. So true. And so that's a second factor. The third would be the war on terror, where Sharon sells the Americans a bill of goods and says, our war against the Palestinians is your war on terror. And that, that logic still still uh, applies to some extent. Right. Are, are those um, strategic reasons diluting at all from an American point of view? Because obviously the Soviet component is gone. Um, there's more allies. Well, I mean, Russia. Are, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's more. Well, yeah, the Russia's still there, obviously. But no, there's, no, more, right. there's more allies in the Middle East with Saudi. Well, there always were. Yeah. There always were. But, you know, the more allies you have, the better. But you're right. Uh, the, 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 the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War really removed one of the main pillars of the strategic, uh, of the strategic argument. Um, and, and Sharon was desperately uh, uh, casting about for another one on 9-11 uh, and found it mm. with the, the global war on, with the global war on terror. Right. Um, and even today, the Soviet Union is not anymore in existence, but Russia is a, still a Middle Eastern power. And the United States is, is and has always been at odds with Russia, or at least not always, but for a very long time now has been at odds with Russia. For sure. And yeah, these are all proxies, of, you know, whether it's Iran, you know, and, and Saudi Arabia and, or the UAE, um, you know, we're still fighting sort of that old Cold War um, behind the scenes or, or not so cold anymore. So I, I, uh, one of the other key takeaways from your book is your, I would say, critique of Palestinian leadership. And I think this also brings to parts of the history that you uh, that you speak about, which you yourself are directly involved with. So right. maybe that would be a, gr a good way to transition and then sort of conclude. Yeah, I mean, in this book and in an earlier book, The Iron Cage, I spend a lot of time 
uh, critiquing Palestinian leadership, whether in the 20s and the 30s or in the first phases of the revival of Palestinian nationalism in the 60s and 70s with the, with the emergence of the PLO and more recently with the PA and with the various negotiations. Um, and I, I, I recognize the difficulty of the odds that the Palestinians were up against. I mean, they were facing in Palestine before 48, the Zionist movement, well-financed, well-supported, the greatest empire in modern history, the British Empire, and the League of Nations. And what did they have on their side? The mediocre uh, Arab regimes, most of which were not even independent at that time. Mm. They still were occupied by Britain or France, controlled, in other words, by the imperial powers. Um, and nothing else, no support. So you have you know, League of Nations, British Army, the Royal Air Force, and the Zionist movement. I, one has to cut them a little bit of slack in critiquing them. Uh, but I, I critique them nonetheless, uh, some of their mistakes. I, I say the same thing about the PLO. I mean, I recognize that they had diplomatic achievements and they had informational achievements, especially in the global south, what used to be called the third world, and in other parts of the world. But they, there were many failures, including, I would argue, their strategy. Um, there are key elements of their strategy that I critique in this book, um, which I can go into, but we really just don't have time. Finally, yeah. my own experience, uh, to some extent, extends to the PLO period, but especially the negotiations, because I was one of the people who was chosen to be an advisor to the Palestinian delegation that was sent to the Madrid and, and then subsequent Washington negotiations with Israel. And we realized, all of us, not just me, very early on, that there was a ceiling to what was we were allowed to do, which excluded an end to the occupation, which excluded a halt to settlements, and which excluded Palestinian sovereignty and statehood. We were not going to be allowed to get there. Now, they said to us, oh, yes, as we say in Arabic, Bukraf al-Mishmish, when the apricots bloom, we will have final status talks at which you can make these claims. But you can't talk about Jerusalem. You can't talk about water. You can't talk about settlements or end of occupation, any of this stuff. And it was pretty clear that all that the Palestinians would be allowed under this low ceiling was some form of autonomy under ultimate Israeli control okay. with continued some form of occupation. Arafat signed a deal which essentially accepted what we in Washington had realized was unacceptable. And that's Oslo. So when we talk about why did the PLO fail and why is the PA such a mess? Well, it's because that's what was offered to them, less than a state. Rabin said it in his last speech in 1975 before he was assassinated. We were offering the Palestinians less than a state. And that's what they got in addition to closures, walls, checkpoints, things that didn't exist before Oslo, uh, in addition to an expansion of settlement, an un unprecedented expansion of the settlement project, and in addition to a much reinforced occupation and much less freedom of movement for Palestinians, lower rates of people working in Israel. I mean, the, the, the disadvantages that, that, that the Palestinians suffered as a result of Oslo put them in a much worse position than they were before us. So I have a stinging critique, not just of the Americans and the Israelis, but of the PLO for accepting this, this atrocious uh, agreement. Right. And that directly leads to the rise of Hamas as a political entity, right? Precisely. Hamas <laughs> responds to the PLO. A feckless and toothless PA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1980, this goes back before the 87 Hamas is founded. Hamas says armed struggle, all of Palestine. The PLO, at this, at, just at that time, is abandoning armed struggle and is accepting a two-state solution on 22% of Palestine. Hamas continues to make this argument through the period of Oslo 
by the end of the 90s, it's clear that Hamas was right. This, this, not that armed struggle is right or that all of Palestine, but that this approach is failed. And that's their argument to this day. Uh, look at what you brought us. Uh, you brought us from, from 100,000 settlers, you brought us to 750,000 settlers. From free movement in 1992 or three or four or five, you brought us to com complete closure. Yeah. And the, 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 the squeezing of Palestinians into smaller and smaller spaces, which is what's happening today in Gaza. People being pushed out of northern Gaza into southern Gaza. Yeah. Yet again, the Palestinians are being compressed, sort of like what happened to Native Americans in the south. They're driven out of Florida, trail of tears, end up in Arkansas and in, 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 the, in the southern Mississippi Valley. And then they're pushed further west into smaller and smaller spaces. Uh, that's what settler colonialism does. Right. And that, that's what's happening even today. And sadly, that's what Oslo uh, helped to facilitate, unfortunately. I think you very effectively dismantle the often talking points that we hear from a pro-Israeli side being that the Palestinians have been offered peace, you know, time and time again, have been off offered settlements time and time again, and they've never agreed. Uh, and so you, well, I think you effectively dismantled that. Yeah, I mean, the Palestinians have been made many offers, but yeah. were these offers for statehood, sovereignty, independence... Uh, viable, uh, uh, contiguous Palestinian state? No. Yeah. Nor yeah. Rabin, nor Barak, uh, nor Olmec, the three Israeli prime ministers who actually made off, uh, were offering any of those things. That's right. And this goes back to the very beginning as well, where whether it was the General Assembly resolutions or it was the Balfour Declaration itself, which basically spoke of Palestinians as not by defining them, but by defining them against what they were not. Like, and what I mean specifically is the, i.e., the non-Jewish population. So, again, that's the, those are the words of the Balfour Declaration and the Mandate for Palestine. And the Mandate. And, and incidentally, the Palestinians are not mentioned in Security Council Resolution Two Fourteen. Same thing. Again, right? The the uh, refugee problem. So, so by way of conclusion, then, hopefully some sort of a hopeful look forward. What do you see happening this time that is different? I think Omar alluded to it. Young people are activated. Um, right. I spoke about this with a reporter we had, a journalist from The Intercept very recently, right, right before th this recording, where we examined the, the pro-Palestinian voices have been far more sophisticated. And I think it's because of social media than we've seen in the past. And if anything, we've also seen the sort of complete disaster that the Israeli PR has been. At the same time, it feels like Netanyahu is taking a position of he wants to put out this this little this fire once and for all and, and make it it feels like that. It feels like an escalation to kind of deal with this pesky little problem from his point of view, big problem. Uh, once and for all, and and there thereby you're seeing the escalation, way right. more deaths, way more violence, way, much more aggressive yeah. posture by Israel. Well, that's true, and I think that it's important to explain that in terms of the fact that Israel suffered the highest uh, civilian death toll in the in its entire history. October seventh, uh, uh, over 800 civilians were killed. Uh, that number was not killed in any of Israel's previous wars, and so there's a shock. To Israeli society and the and the and the many people who are who feel connections to Israeli society, which is the springboard for the attack that you're talking about, for the you know extraordinary claims that that Netanyahu is making for the aims of this war, um, and for American support for Israel, which is unbounded American governmental support. On the other hand, and that's where we'll end. Sure, uh, we are seeing globally and in the Arab world and in the United States, an unprecedented level of support for Palestinian rights. Um, people who were horrified by the 
uh, killing of so many Israeli civilians at the very beginning of the war have been even more horrified by the killing of 12 times as many Palestinians, right. civilians, uh, since the war began. And that has been part of a shift that I think has been ongoing among young Americans, among American minorities, uh, among Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, and in many parts of the world over many, many years now, 10, 15 years maybe. And, you know, you've seen this in polling up until the beginning of this war. Majority of Democrats sympathize more with Palestinians than with Israelis. Mm -hmm. Well, that's new. You haven't had that since Woodrow Wilson. Uh, you have a few brave members of Congress willing to stick their heads above the parapet and say a word or two in support of the Palestinians. Yeah. You never had that. You had the odd individual, and they were sniped at immediately and driven out of office. You know, McCluskey, Senator Percy, Senator Aborizic, you know, one person per decade. Maybe. Right. Well, now you have dozens. Um, so there has been an enormous shift, and I agree with you. It's partly the fact that younger people are immune to the toxic uh, effect of uh, the mainstream media. They have contempt for it. They pay no attention to it. They know that it's biased and slanted and meretricious, worthless. Um, and they have their own sources. I mean, they, they, they consume mainstream media, but they're more likely to listen to a podcast like this or to you know, Vox or The Intercept or whatever it may be than The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC put together. Right. And that's all to the good. Because the people who own those media are biased and slanted. The people who own our Congress are biased and slanted. The people who own our universities, the donors and the board of trustees, boards of trustees, are biased and slanted. Our government is made up of people, uh, most of whom uh, are biased. And, and young people know that. And they're in a different place. And it's not just young people. It's, and it's not just, you know, Arab and Muslim students or whatever. Uh, a huge proportion of the student activists across these campuses are Jewish. A huge proportion of them are black. Uh, when two student organizations, uh, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace were banned, all the other student groups picked up the mantle and said, we'll, we'll organize. <laughs> yeah. The black students and the gay students and the this, the gay LGBTQ students and so on and so forth. Uh, Latinx students. They just said, okay, we'll do it. So you have this broad uh, swath of young people and minorities and and people of faith and in some unions. I mean, the postal union came out in favor of the ceasefire. Think about the diversity of, of your local post of local post people. And that's an indication of where a very vast swath of American society has moved um, from from unblinking, right. uncomprehending support from Israel to a more critical position. And that's that's to me a source of great optimism. Well, I know you're joining us from your offices in Columbia University. We just we got a little feel for how, what it is like. Well, again, Professor Khalidi, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out. Of, I know a very, very busy and hectic schedule, especially nowadays. And just thank you for taking the time and, and being on the show. And and we definitely recommend the book. I personally, been making my way through the audiobook, which is you know some audiobooks are very dry. This is actually very engaging. The narrator, the narrator. I know you do the intro, Professor, but the the narrator, the reader, does a great. Job as well. He's really good. Thank you very much, Elman. Thank you so much, Professor Khadadi, for bringing your insight, bringing your expertise, and really just illuminating us and illuminating our uh, listening audience. I wanted to also take this opportunity to once again really reiterate what a wonderful book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Reading a brief excerpt of the book, a landmark history of 100 years 
of war waged against the Palestinians from the foremost U.S. historian of the Middle East, told through pivotal events and family history. Original, authoritative, and important, the Hundred Years' War on Palestine is not a chronicle of victimization, nor does it whitewash mistakes of Palestinian leaders or deny the emergence of national movements on both sides. In reevaluating the forces arrayed against the Palestinians, it offers an illuminating new view of a conflict that continues to this day. Professor Khalidi has written numerous books, as we mentioned in his bio, but I would say that this is one of his most personal and one of his most accessible works. He brings his deft academic training as a historian and weaves in that expertise uh, his own sort of chronicles, his family's chronicles through the uh, Palestinian resistance and the Palestinian conflict. So again, could not recommend his book enough. You can find his book at your local bookstore. You can order it online. Um, I believe an audiobook is available as well, as Omar alluded to. So definitely, definitely check out Professor Khalidi's new book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Again, listeners, thank you so much for allowing us to continue to bring you these topics related to what is happening right now in Gaza and Palestine. We will continue to do so as we can explore new topics that are related to the overall conflict, and we'll continue to bring on experts who can illuminate us with their expertise and background. If you like what you hear, please share the episode. Please leave a review, a star rating. Every little bit helps and gets the word out. If you have a question, comment, feedback, please email us at diffusecongruence at gmail.com. You can also engage us on Twitter, Facebook, as well as on Instagram. We always appreciate the feedback. So thank you as always for listening. And you can catch us on the next episode of Diffuse Congruence.